Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Medical research has a wildly problematic gender gap. For centuries, women have been underrepresented in research topics, including, but in no way limited to, cardiovascular disease, cancer, Alzheimer's, building muscle, nutrition, and movement. Oftentimes, women are just given the same protocols as men, and they suffer the health consequences. The medical system has neglected women for far too long, and it's time to close the gender gap. One of the women leading the charge is Dr. Stacey Sims, an exercise physiologist and nutrition scientist who aims to revolutionize exercise nutrition and performance for women. She frequently works on ethics boards to review researchers' scientific designs. She has published over 70 peer-reviewed papers, and she's a featured expert in our upcoming 2024 well-being forecast, which you'll be able to check out the first week of December. And today, Stacy is here to discuss what we're still getting wrong about women's health and what women need to know about topics like zone two, cold plunge, and protein. It's not what you think. A must-listen episode for all of our female listeners today. Quote, women are not just small men. End quote. You've become famous for this one in our world. Tell us more. Women are not just small men. I completely agree. (laughs) Yeah, I kind of laugh that has become such a tagline because I used to use it to wake up undergraduate students for sex difference classes when I was teaching at Stanford because you hear that and all of a sudden you're like, wait, what do you mean by that? So I didn't use it very often, but I did use it. And then when I launched a sport nutrition company, we had a women's specific line that became the tagline for the women's line. And it is really apparent when you start thinking about it, because, I mean, you go into any Macy's or, you know, another department store and they have the women's section, the men's section, they have perfume for men, perfume for women, they have everything that's gendered, but no one looks at research that way. Like it's been kind of the taboo to have women specific research in sports science, or if they're using biomedical research, they're excluding women because of different hormone capacities, or they're looking at mice models that are based on male rats. And so when we really dig down to all the stuff that we inherently think about to help get us healthy from training and exercise and nutrition and sleep patterns and all of these things that are out there, it's primarily through male data. So if we look specifically at female physiology, it opens a whole new world of questions. And that's kind of what I've been pushing for the past 20 some years in in everything that I do, research, sport, everything. So if you could wave your magic wand right now and get funding and a team together for any research, any study, and it could happen right now, what would that be? My ideal right now is more of a sociological study rather than a physiological study, because I really would like to have a global study on menstrual cycle awareness, menstrual cycle conversations, trying to break down the taboo, but understanding where people are coming from that keeps creating this tabooness around the menstrual cycle. So let's go there. How, How should women be thinking about their menstrual cycle and making informed decisions about their diet, their workouts, their recovery, everything. Yeah. So the first thing I want people to understand is that the menstrual cycle and having a regular cycle is a really good sign of endocrine health. 
So when people are having menstrual cycle irregularities or dysfunction, then it's something to, to kind of like take a pause and go, well, what's inherently wrong? Do I have PCOS or endometriosis? Or am I training too hard or I'm not sleeping well? What is the basis? Because when we start to see menstrual cycle dysfunction, it's the first kind of red flag, pun intended, to say, hey, there's a misstep here between energy in, energy out, and the way the hypothalamus is perceiving appetite, energy regulation, thermoregulation. So if we try to cover it up by using oral contraceptive pills or other um, means, and we're not paying attention to that basic health metric, then we're, we can say that we're kind of missing the mark. And unfortunately, it's so pervasive in the medical community when someone comes in and says, you know, I have irregular cycles or my period has stopped. Instead of digging down to figure it out, they're like, here's an oral contraceptive pill. It's going to give you a period back, but it's not a true period. It's a withdrawal bleed. So it really does not indicate your endocrine health or help uncover what actually is going on. So that's the first thing. If women are tracking their cycle and they start to see their inherent patterns within their own cycle, then when things start to have a misstep, then it's an early awareness to kind of take a pause and and really reflect, am I training too hard? Am I eating well? Am I not sleeping well? Am I traveling too much? So then you can put steps into play to kind of bring it back to keep you on a healthy path instead of getting into more of a sympathetic drive or you know getting sick, um, just as the basic things, especially as we're looking to go into winter from um, summer. So yeah, so many things there. What's your general view on the birth control pill? It's useful. In different metrics, right? So if there's a true health condition, so if we're looking at PCOS, endometriosis, ovulatory pain, all of these kinds of things, it's beneficial because it downregulates your own ovarian function. But I don't appreciate the fact that it's the first port of call when someone goes to their GP and says, hey, I'm having these menstrual cycle irregularities, or my daughter is concerned because she has irregularities and bad skin. Um, because there are so many things we don't know about the OC. There was a study that was just released that was looking at the emotional area of the brain. And I read about this morning where using the OC will thin part of the cortex and they don't know how that affects emotional regulation. So if a young adolescent is put on an OC, how is that affecting brain development? Like this is 2023 and we're just now finding this stuff out. So there's so many things that we don't know about the long-term effects of using the oral contraceptive pill. So I, I always tell people, look, there's a time and a place to use it, but it's not the thing that you should go get because you have bad skin or go get because that's what someone told you to get. It's not the thing to manipulate your cycle because we also see that you are slowing adaptation when you're using oral contraceptive pills. So how should women be looking at their menstrual cycle if they're really interested in optimizing their performance in terms of their diet, their exercise, and their recovery? If we look at the textbook aspect of a menstrual cycle, and we say that day one is the first day of bleeding, <laughs> around day 12 to 13 is ovulation, after that is our high hormone or our luteal phase, which lasts about 14 days as it brings us back to day one. We see that Day one, first day bleeding up through ovulation, women are more, quote, like men, where we can access carbohydrate well, we recover well, 
as we get closer to ovulation, we have faster muscle contraction, we have more aggression, motivation, and we our core temperature is lower, our sleep is better as we get closer to ovulation. Our immune system is fighting fit where we're really good at fighting off virus and bacteria. But then after ovulation, there's an inherent switch because of the reproductive aspect where the body doesn't want to harm a potential fertilized egg. So core temperature goes up because there's more of a fever and inflammatory response for our immune system. We see that progesterone is responsible for breaking down so many things that come in. So we can't access carbohydrate very well because progesterone is taking it to fill the endometrial lining full of a lovely glycogen in case an egg is fertilized. We also see it breaks down more amino acids, so we have more potential for lean mass loss. So when we get into that high hormone phase, it's an eye to having more protein. We also have to have a little bit more carbohydrate in and around any kind of intensity that we're doing just to support what's happened with this shift in our um, menstrual cycle hormones. So that's like the general idea when we look from a top end physiological, but we can't discount people's lived experiences. So this is why I tell women, you really need to track your own cycle and find your own patterns of when you feel great and when you don't feel great. Because I can say, hey, you know, around ovulation, it's time to go hard. But if you're someone who suffers from severe ovulatory pain and you're in bed, then of course you're not going to put in some high intensity. Or, you know, on day three, you feel fantastic. And so you go hit it hard, but then maybe day six of your cycle, you're feeling a little bit flat. When you start to find your own patterns, then you can dial in your training and it removes that negative self-talk that so many women have of what did I do wrong? Why am I not being able to perform as well as I normally do? And when you realize that, oh, it's day 18 and I never feel good in the heat. That's why I suck at hot yoga today. It's because not because of something that you did. So we're going to attempt to cover a lot of ground here. So for the for the sake of moving this along, I'm going to I'm going to park this group and move on to the other group of women, women experiencing perimenopause. What what about those women? So when we think about puberty, the other end of the spectrum, where all of we're having a whole bunch of hormone flux, every system of the body's affected. For those of us who have 11 to 14-year-old girls, you know, moods change, body changes, all of those things. Now, when we get to perimenopause, we're kind of un unwinding all of that because we're starting to have changes in our ratios of estrogen, progesterone, which subsequently affects every system of the body. So we're looking at changes in our gut microbiome. We're looking at changes in brain and neurotransmitters. We're looking at changes in our sleep and sleep architecture. We're definitely seeing changes in body composition. So when we're talking about the perimenopausal time period, this is where we have to take a step back and go, okay, well, my hormones are in a little bit of a misstep, so they're not going to be working from body comp and recovery point of view the way they used to. So now I need to find an external stress that is going to cause an adaptation the way these hormones used to support. So this is where we have the eye to polarize high intensity training heavy lifting, um, making sure that we're really adequately recovering, dropping the volume. And it's the eye to creating the stress to have a subsequent growth hormone response. 
also causing some epigenetic changes within the muscle to improve our blood glucose and glucose homeostasis, as well as signaling the central nervous system that we need to maintain lean mass, power, and speed. And what about menopause? So menopause is technically just at one point on the calendar that marks 12 months of no periods. After that is postmenopause. So we have early postmenopause, which is around the five or six years right after that one point in time. And this is where we still want to keep doing what we did with perimenopause, where we're lifting heavy, we're having you know two to three days of sprint interval training a week. We're really knocking down the amount of low intensity and moderate intensity activity that we're doing, having a higher eye to increasing our protein content. When we start to get to late postmenopause, so that's six years onwards, <clears throat> we see that we don't respond as well to the high intensity work. So what we need to do is we need to have more doses, more regular doses of high intensity, more regular doses of resistance training, but less volume. So what I mean by that, instead of having two days of 30 minute session of sprint intervals, you're having four days of 15 minutes. So you're splitting it up. So you're having more regular, but shorter doses of that. And the reason for that is we've completely lost any kind of sensitivity to any estrogen or progesterone because our receptors are like, there's nothing there. So again, we need to look at what are we doing? We need to have regular doses of, of this high intensity and resistance training to keep lean mass going, to keep vascular compliance, keep our blood pressure in check, to keep our bones going strong and our proprioception and our cognition. So it's a little bit of a range of where you are on that menopause scale, that postmenopause scale. So you have a little bit more play early postmenopause with what you're doing, but when you get into later postmenopause, that's where you really have to, you know, look and say, I need to do my high intensity and resistance training almost every day doing something, but a short amount of time. If I'm hearing correctly, it sounds like no matter which group you're in. <clears throat> Protein consumption is a priority. Resistance training is a priority. High intensity interval training is is a priority. However, the intensity is lessening or decreasing. The intensity is decreasing as you age, and the frequency is increasing. If I'm summarizing correctly, do I have that right? So everyone needs the high intensity. The intensity itself doesn't change. It's all relative anyway, but the duration of time that you're spending. So if you're looking at late perimenopause, early postmenopause, you might do 10, 30 second sprints with a minute in between. When you get to late postmenopause, you might be doing four and that's it because it's a shorter dose, but still high intensity. So we're really dropping volume, but we need to keep that upper intensity stuff. What's the magic with sprints? I feel like sprints, and we're going to touch on some, you know, cold plunging and intermittent fasting and zone two and all that stuff that people love to talk about right now. But I feel like sprints, I'm hearing a lot more about sprints recently. So sprint really kind of does a more than just two things. One, it's a central nervous system response where all of a sudden it's this huge high fast load. So the central nervous system has to be like, boom, got to have a lot of, of capability of having uh, fast muscle contraction. So it keeps neural pathways going. So it's something with the eye to avoiding cognitive decline. When we're looking at the glycolytic aspect of sprint interval training, so not only are we getting into the ATP, CP, but we're also getting into more carbohydrate utilization. 
So this is where we start to see true epigenetic changes within the muscle, where now we are having more of what we call GLUT4 transport proteins come. So what this really is, is a gate that opens up the cell membrane to allow carbohydrate to come in or glucose to come in without insulin. So it gives us better insulin sensitivity and the ability to maintain a blood glucose homeostasis because our muscles are like, hey, I need some of that. Bring it in without insulin. Because as we age, we all get a little bit more insulin resistant. And then the third thing is with sprints, we get this really fantastic crosstalk through what we call exerkines, which are little metabolites that create this conversation between the serial fat, so that's that deep abdominal fat that no one wants to have, and the skeletal muscle. And the skeletal muscle is telling the visceral fat through these little messengers that, hey, we don't need you. We do not need you at all. So we need lean mass. We need carbohydrate within the muscle. We don't need visceral fat. So it's a really fantastic way of improving body composition, of attenuating cognitive decline, increasing muscle capacity and muscle function. And then the... Um, I guess the biggest thing there is because it is a sprint interval, it works on proprioception. So as you get older, your falls risk decreases as well. So there's so many great things about the sprint capacity and not that long, slow endurance stuff. So essentially you're doing a sprint, call it a uh, hundred meters or across the field or, and then you're walking back and then you're doing it again and then you're doing it again and re repeat over and over. And it doesn't have to be running either. So that's the other thing. People are like, oh, I can't run because I have bad hips and knees. Sprint interval training is really just pushing for an RPE of 9 to 10 and no more than 30 seconds. And then you're slowly walking back between one and three minutes of full recovery so that when you do it again, you're completely recovered from a central nervous system and a metabolic capacity of that fast twitch to be able to go just as hard again for 30 seconds or less. So I'm wearing my whoop. So in other words, is this like zone, zone four? Five. Zone five. We're going up to level five. Wow. Okay. We're, we're doing it. <laughs> it's not supposed to be easy. It's supposed to be hard. So on that, on that note, zone two, zone two is definitely all the rage right now largely due to Dr. Peter Atia we've had on the show. But you say not so fast if you're a woman. So let's talk about that. Yeah. So you know how you opened up and said women are not small men and what's that about? Well, this is another case in point where the conversation about zone two is all based on male physiology and male data. When we look at sex differences between muscle morphology, women already have a larger amount of slow twitch or oxidative fibers. They have less of the fast twitch fibers compared to men. We also see that by the nature of being born, and I will quantify this XX because I'm just, this is the research that's been done. Women have more mitochondria density, better mitochondria respiration. We have a greater sensitivity to one of the metabolites that inhibits free fatty acids from coming in. We also are really good at picking up free fatty acids and bringing it in. And we're also really good at taking lactate and recycling it to use it for aerobic metabolism in the slow twitch fibers. When we look at zone two and what zone two is about, zone two is about increasing oxidative capacity, increasing mitochondrial health, increasing the number of what we call MCT1 
transport proteins, and these are the ones that take lactate out of circulation, put them into the mitochondria to get lactate out of circulation and be used as a fuel. When we look at men, yes, they need to do zone two to increase the amount of MCT1s, to increase mitochondrial density, to increase the uh, respiratory capacity of mitochondria, but women don't. There's, I'm actually writing an article right now about when we look at the difference between sprint work and hit work in women and men, women will upregulate more of the MCT1s as well as the MCT4s that produce the lactate, whereas men don't have a response. So when we're looking at the difference between the exercise intensities, again, women need to do more of that high intensity work. One, they have less of the glycolytic muscles, so we want to stimulate lactate production and upregulate the ability to produce it and clear it, because if we don't, then we're going to be continuously in the slow-mo, and so if we're looking at cancer risks and other reasons why people are saying to do zone two, we don't have the actual capacity to change and get that lactate unless we do that high intensity and the body recognizes it. Wow. I'm glad we talked about this. Yeah. And so I'm now I'm waiting for all the haters to be like, where's all the research? And I'll be like, here you go. Here's the research. We have we have nothing but love on our show uh for our guests. So you're you're all good here. It's a safe place. Thanks. What about cold plunge? Yeah. So cold plunge is beneficial for women but not as cold as what people think. So if we're talking like the Wim Hof method, the ice baths, those kinds of things, again, sex differences. When we look at the gradient and the temperature gradient of when women start to shiver or when women start to feel cold, it's around 16 degrees C, which is about 55, 56 degrees Fahrenheit water, not zero. So when we start looking at all of our autonomic nervous system responses, our shivering effects, it's not as cold for women as it is for men. We also see that it is more beneficial for women than it is for men, especially post-exercise. Because post-exercise, women vasodilate, so all of their blood goes to the periphery away from the heart, which is why some women feel really lightheaded after exercise. But for men, all the blood goes centrally you have vasoconstriction. So to enhance that central return, women should get into cool water to create a vasoconstriction to send that blood back centrally to enhance recovery. So when we're talking about cold plunge, there's a time and a place for it, depending on if you're doing it for health reasons or if you're doing it for training reasons. For health reasons, there's no real reason why you can't do it like a few times a week. For training reasons, you want to make sure that you're doing it according to specific training blocks because there is a slight disadvantage for using cold and dampening inflammation because we need a little bit of that inflammatory response for adaptations. So in other words, you may hurt your quote-unquote gains if you're in the gym and working out and then you're jumping in the plunge right after. Right. I tell people go to the sauna. The heat does so much more for us from a health and a training perspective than a cold plunge. I've seen that, but temperature I have not. And that's a big difference. If you're if you're more or less saying 55 degrees for women, and for all you see is on Instagram and the internet for men is, you know, 45. 30, yes. Big, it's a big difference. 
It's a huge difference. If women are getting into too cold of water, then they have a severe vasoconstriction, almost Raynaud's response. And then that is a sympathetic response. So we don't get the parasympathetic responses that we need and want from cold. And this is, again, something that's not discussed, which brings us back to the women are not small men, because the data that's primarily being discussed is based on male studies. What about you know another hot topic, building, maintaining lean muscle mass? How are women different? This is another hormone profile thing. So when we're looking at pre-menopause, we can look at doing more hypertrophy stuff and get some, um, so you know, your 10 to 12 reps, three sets, the traditional kind of work. Uh, we know that there is a recovery time difference between men and women because women are more endurant, so they need less recovery between sets than men. But as we start getting into perimenopause and postmenopause, and we lose estrogen, and estrogen is women's testosterone with regards to building lean mass. Then we have to look at stimulating through a, like I said earlier, a central nervous system response. And I say that because estrogen is responsible for how strong a muscle contraction is, how fast that muscle contraction is, as well as how lean mass is developed. So if we take away estrogen, then we lose a satellite cell response. So we're not getting necessarily signaling to build lean mass. We're also losing the ability for our two um, major proteins to bond together and create a very tight contraction. So that's our strength. And we're also losing the amount of the neurotransmitter responsible for a nerve impulse. So if we do a central nervous system response by lifting heavy, so we're doing our three to five reps, we're doing three to five sets of that. We're having around three minutes recovery in between. So heavy is 80% or more of one rep max. This is where we have the central nervous system go, oh my gosh, we have a heavy load, so we have to make sure we can stimulate those muscles, do it quickly, do it strongly, and we also need to build and or maintain the lean mass we have in case we have to overcome this load again. And women have a really, really difficult time putting on lean mass and keeping it on as they get older. So it's super, super important to get that central nervous system response, as well as follow it up with a good dose of protein. So on, on that note, protein, what, what is your view on protein needs for women and also timing before or after working out? So protein in itself is one of those, I feel like everyone's under-proteined. And we look and the current recommendations are really low. So what I want women to understand is when you look at the RDA for protein in the States, it is based on sedentary older men. And the reason why they did that is because they're like, oh, it's around the same body composition as a 20-year-old woman. So yeah, that's about all you need. And it's based on the minimum amount of protein that you need not to be malnourished. But as soon as you start adding activity and younger muscle in, we know you need more. So we do have the research to back it up to show that women who are recreationally active, who are premenopausal, need minimum of 1.6 to 1.8 grams per kilogram of body weight. So that's about 1.2 to 1.4 grams per pound of body weight. So it's up there. When we get into peri and postmenopause, it's closer to that 2.2 to 2.4 grams per kilogram. And when we're talking about timing, super important to get it in post-exercise because women's 
bodies come back down to a baseline level a lot faster than men. And we see that 30 grams in premenopausal tends to be the sweet spot to continue muscle protein synthesis for up to 24 hours, and 40 grams in late peri and postmenopausal women. So it's a far cry from that 20 grams that circulates. So you need your 20 grams of protein. We've had Dr. Gabrielle Lyon on the show. It's consistent with everything she said. It's an important message. I'm also curious, what types of deficiencies do we tend to see in these certain groups? I know iron is one that can come up. What should we be on the lookout for as people are doing blood work? Vitamin D. Vitamin D is really important. We see that it low vitamin D levels are associated with low iron storage as well as anemia. It's also associated really bad um, PMT or PMS symptoms as well as PPMD, which is your premenstrual dysphoria disorder, so really bad mood changes. So if you're suffering immensely from PMS or PPMD, getting your vitamin D checked. So those two tend to be the really big ones, vitamin D and iron. We also, you know, I've been talking forever about creatine, finally seeing it's making the inroads. Creatine really important for women. Yes. Yeah. So important. So those would be the big three, I would say, to pay attention to. What dosage do you recommend for women who are doing resistance training? Uh, three to five grams a day. You don't have to do the heavy bodybuilding um, superset of uh, five grams four times a day. It takes about three weeks to fully saturate on the three grams, and you start to, you know, feel the difference from a muscle standpoint, but also a mood standpoint. And if you're doing a lower dose of that around three grams, the side effects are very minimal. There's relatively little water weight gain, bloating, or any kind of other GI distress because it's a low enough dose that it's really rapidly absorbed and saturating every system in the body. You know, another one. You know, we we touched on plunges, we've touched on zone two, although I think interest has maybe subsided a little bit, but I still think it's out there in the zeitgeist, intermittent fasting. And this is a big one with regards to differences between men and women. Yeah. So um, when we talk about intermittent fasting versus time-restricted eating, that's the other thing that's not really clarified. So intermittent fasting is that not eating for 16 hours or 20 hours or, you know, having a very tight window when you can and can't eat. And time-restricted eating is really not eating after dinner and then eating breakfast. So if we're looking at time-restricted eating or, you know, old-fashioned normal eating, that's fine for both sexes. It's very beneficial. We look at intermittent fasting and delaying our food intake till noon or after it's very detrimental for women, and we are seeing more evidence for it being detrimental to men as well, because one, it interferes with chronobiology. So we see in a lot of the population research that's coming out that if you're delaying breaking your fast till noon or after, you end up with more obesogenic um, characteristics. So all the things that you're trying to do with fasting actually doesn't work. If we are looking at breaking our fast by 8 a.m. and then restricting eating um, until 5 p.m., so you're eating in the day, then you're seeing in men that it's very beneficial. You're getting increased telomere length. You're improving body composition. You're getting better parasympathetic responses. But for women, it's not quite the same. So when we're looking at women and the restriction of food intake, the hypothalamus is super sensitive in women because we have two areas of 
what we call kisspeptin neurons in the hypothalamus. One is responsible for appetite, meaning your ghrelin and leptin and satiation. The other is responsible for endocrine control. So this is your hormone flux, your luteinizing hormone, your estrogen, progesterone, testosterone. When you have low food intake and your hypothalamus is perceiving it as low energy, these kisspeptin neurons are downturned. So we see misstep in our luteinizing hormone pulse. We have a reduction in our testosterone, our estrogen, our progesterone. We see a downturn in our thyroid. We see a change in our appetite hormones where there's dysregulation of appetite, appetite hormones. So when we're talking about intermittent fasting for women, it should be all about time-restricted eating and definitely not having that true intermittent fasting because it's very detrimental to our body's ability to regulate energy, our body's ability to thermoregulate, as well as total health and endocrine function. It's also really hard to get enough protein. Exactly. And I found, and this is about women, it's not about me, but something that as I've gotten older, resistance training and, and maintaining lean muscle mass has become a priority, a huge priority because I started to lose it. And I was like, wow, I need to focus on this. And I found I just couldn't get enough meals in. I, I couldn't get the protein. It was like impossible. If I'm doing 16, 18 hours, it's impossible. Not impossible. I was, but it was very, very difficult. 48 hours to get that. You know, and I've learned to love sardines and and the, the venison that all, all the biohackers love. I've learned to love all that stuff and it's still really hard. It's still hard, yes. Some have had success with time-restricted eating, intermittent fasting with the goal of weight loss. And, and on the subject of weight loss, what, what are the big differences here for women and, and how they differ from men and, and what's really, I, I know it's a hard to generalize, but generally what's, what's a more effective for women? Protein. So there's been a couple of really cool studies that have come out recently, just looking at moderating protein intake in sedentary women. So the first one that came out was looking at sedentary, normal weight, but uh, technically obese women. So they had a lot of um, fat cells within the muscle. And so they were normal weight, but a lot of body fat. And they took half of the group and bumped them up to 1.8 grams per kilogram of of body weight of protein a day. And the others were still in their normal 0.6 to 0.8. And over the course of 12 weeks without any kind of exercise at all, the women who were on the higher protein intake completely recomped their bodies. So they were still normal weight, but instead of having a 30 to 35% body fat, they dropped down to 20. And it was muscle protein synthesis that really changed. So protein's super, super important if you're trying to recomp and lose body fat. Because the other thing that is a pure sex difference is when women restrict calories, the very first thing to go is lean mass. So we need to support it. So the big rock there, just like you're saying, hey, as you get older, you lose, re you lose lean mass. If you're trying to recomp and lose weight, protein. You need that protein. Wow. That is really interesting. So why aren't we talking? This should be like front page news. I know. We've talked about it and we push it out there, but no one picks it up. I was like, how are you not picking it up? Like, this is so important. Increasing your protein intake, there's so many health benefits and it helps regulate appetite. It helps with blood glucose, homeostasis. It helps increase lean mass, total body recomp. And then when you add just a little bit of resistance training, it enhances the effects. I don't think enough people know about this, that increasing protein consumption 
is is a viable option. When I first got out of grad school way back in the day, I worked for an obesity surgeon. And in the, I'd say about 60% of the cases, we had to have them lose a little bit of weight in order to be healthy enough to go through surgery. We put them on a high protein diet with some carbohydrate. And they kept their lean mass and lost body fat. And this was back in the 90s, right? So we know protein is so important in the clinical population as well. So there were some people who were so happy with the fact that they're recomping just by higher protein intake that they pulled out of the surgery, which is huge if you think about people who are going down the path of obesity surgery and Roux-en-Y and gastric bypass and all those kinds of things. And yeah, I really struggle with the fact that it's not out there in mainstream and it's not being recommended by dietitians to try this kind of aspect. Now, I'm not saying the carnivorous diet, I'm not saying, you know, no carbohydrate, the high protein, no carb, but a higher protein intake that we're having at a more regular intervals across the day is super beneficial. So I, I want to come back to, to where we started in this idea that, you know, women are not just small men. And as the, the father of two daughters, I'm a man raised by his mother and grandmother. I'll, I'll be the first person to say that women are far superior to men. And I, you know, was having this conversation with my wife. We've become very big fans of women's volleyball. And we were explaining to our daughters that 90,000 people came to watch the Nebraska women play volleyball. And this is amazing that so many people are excited to watch women play this sport and the athleticism and the talent. And I, I am in awe as, as a former athlete, I say, wow, like the, what women are doing, this is unbelievable. We're at a place, girls, you're better than the boys. You, you, you are, <laughs> you, you, we, we can get there. And I feel like this has been a dramatic shift. And so this is just me being a doting father and being surrounded by women, but what what's your view? Let's bring some science to this. This idea that that women are or can be superior to men in many ways, physically. Yeah, I think this is again in the social construct. So I work very closely with a sociologist who's also in this in the female space. So what we're seeing is the fact that women haven't had as many training opportunities as men have throughout the decades. So now that we're having even technology and women are able to train and have a profession out of being a professional athlete, we're seeing their abilities just, you know, just keep going up, 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 up. Uh, the other thing is media and the way that media is playing into women's sport. So we see the FIFA World Cup. We see uh, like outside of the U.S., we see a lot of the women's rugby, especially the women's sevens on because New Zealand took gold at, at the Olympics. We're seeing uh, more women's bike racing on TV, which brings in more sponsorship dollars, which brings in more funding. So again, it's just really increasing the capacity for women to be professional in sport. I had a, a question the other day about my feelings of Kona Ironman World Championships being split. So this is the first year it was just a women's only race. And I said, well, from a female physiology perspective, it's fantastic because it creates a, a completely different environment for women. They feel empowered. There's different types of aggression. So you're no longer, you know, having the male aggression to fight against. You're having competitive aggression that also can be very empowering. 
And the follow-on question from that was, but doesn't that take away from the men? Because I have two boys and I don't want them to miss out. And I was like, no, no. The thing about it is women are being elevated. It doesn't mean that they're better than men. It's just now they are being elevated to a point where men used to be. Men aren't losing out on anything. Men are still gaining and they have sponsorship and they have abilities. It's just now we're seeing women come to a point, not quite where men are, but they are still coming up. And the men are feeling that pressure because now they're not the ones that are always in the spotlight. So from a physiological perspective, when we look at the sports that women are being very successful in, it is more the endurance type sports when they're getting older, because that's just the way women's bodies are designed by biology. We're more endurance, which brings us back to like the oxidative fibers. We look at sprint and power. Women aren't catching up to the same speed and power that men are, but there's more high profile women because again, training and training mechanisms and funding have been able to filter into more global communities. So it's a really interesting space right now to see what is going to happen. How is this tipping point going to come to be? Well, I think about how we've advanced training and I'll use volleyball as an example. I think some of these women playing college at a high level are closing on like a 40 inch vertical leap, which in, in my day playing basketball 25 years ago, that was insane for a man. Yeah. It's still quite good. And the fact, and so is it, you know, going back, you know, I, I, there's the, the famous study around, you know, more women were getting ACL tears playing, playing soccer. And the theory was that men were doing our boys, cause this is at a lower level. Uh, we're doing strength training earlier. And that was the reason they were more protective muscle around them or women were, that wasn't part of, of the system, so to speak, or the protocol. Mm -hmm. And now it is. And I think culturally that's changed. It's okay to be, you know, we say to a strong woman and that's fantastic. Yes. And the other thing that's changing because it's okay for girls to be in the weight room, we're seeing more functional movement work. So looking at biomechanics, landing mechanics, jump off, toe off, all of those things, where we see that at puberty, there's a complete shift in women's biomechanics, where we have a widening of the hips. So we have a widening of the Q angle, so hip to knee, which is why girls end up with a greater predisposition to ACL tear and knee injuries. And there's also a rapid growth. So the limbs are stronger than the core because they've had lots of growth. We see a change in center of gravity. So up until, I mean, it's even current now, but really up until about 10 years ago, no one addressed that for girls. They just had them train like boys, throw them in the weight room and make them do kind of the same stuff. And it was increasing injuries until people were like, hey, wait a second, we have to look at the change in biomechanics and make sure that they are functionally strong through all range of motion before we add load. So an eye to what you're saying is the training techniques have changed based on the fact that they're working with girls instead of boys. What else? You know, we've talked about cold plunges, zone two, fasting. We've talked about some, I would say, big hot topics that we're just wrong on for women. What else are we wrong on where you see it trending on, on social media and you just scratch your head and say, this is terrible. <laughs> we're, we're, it's completely wrong for women. What else? Let's, let's go there. Supplements. Yeah. Uh, so looking at all the supplements on the market, right? And we look and see 
all the stuff that's out there for men about putting on muscle and getting big and all that stuff. And then for women, it's about losing weight. So we already have that kind of gendered effect when you go into the vitamin shop and in the supplement market. And we know that women have more buying power. They're the ones that purchase more things in the households as well. And so they're buying into a lot of these things. But in all actuality, hardly any of the supplements have been tested on women. So we look at things like beet juice, right? That's been all the rage for a long time about increasing nitric oxide, vasodilation, better vascular compliance. We see that in premenopausal women, it actually is not beneficial and it's actually harmful because estrogen is so tightly tied to vascular function that when you are increasing your intake of nitrates through a concentrate like that, you're really interfering with estrogen receptors and feedback. So you end up with less blood pressure control, less vasodilatory properties. So, I mean, that's just one example, but in postmenopausal women, because they've lost some of that estrogen control, it does work. So those are the things that are out there. And it's like people are just shoved all together with all these supplements. But when we look at the audit of all the popular supplements, hardly any women are included in any of the studies for efficacy. Beet powder is top of mind. I take that every day for nitric oxide. My wife does not, though. Good. I was going to say, tell her not to take it. <laughs> uh, is there anything else we haven't covered today that you'd like to touch on before we go? I think we touched on quite a bit. Really? We did. We, we, we covered a lot of ground. Well, thank you so much for coming on I, 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 and making time. I, I appreciate the real time difference between New Zealand and Miami, but thank you for, for coming on all the important work you do on the subject. Oh, thanks for having me. And it's middle of my day in your evening. So I think you drew the short end of the straw. <laughs> <laughs> my wife has to start bedtime. So Maybe she's the one who, uh, I just come in at the end to close. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Thank you so much.